So welcome um, to this kind of special event uh, with Amakan Santi, who is you know, uh, on her way traveling through the area, and we're always uh, happy to welcome her. Um, Amakan Santi is you know, one of a few um, of the fully ordained uh, Bakunis in this uh, lineage, and um, so it's always an honor when you can come by and uh, share with us. Ama and I have known each other now for a few years. Yeah, yeah. always a pleasure. So yeah. look forward to uh, what you have to offer and uh, inside Santa Cruz welcomes you. Thank you, Jason. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Okay, happy to be here. Um, what I'd like to do is uh, start with the meditation, but I'd like to start everybody meditating standing up. Sand all over your cushion. Your pelvic floor. 
the lower part of the abdomen and torso and the middle part of the torso and the upper part of the torso and the shoulders and the shoulder blades and the fingers and the hands the lower part of the arm the elbow the upper part of the arm neck jaw face eyes forehead back of the head so just taking a few moments to make an invitation to relax and let the tension drain into the earth noticing what it feels like to do that, how the body responds, the muscles soften, the breath changes, the skin can become more flexible, and the smile on our face changes from a kind of plastic smile that we paste on to an inner smile that just emerges. So as we relax our physical body, it is hugely supportive for attention to connect and settle and to be present with what's going on. So in addition to relaxation, what's also really helpful is energizing. So after a day of work, busyness, traffic, emails, texting, computers, talking, sometimes our system can be drained, tired, scattered. And so relaxing the muscle tension and the tension in the body then allows us to renew. And we can allow the energy that comes from the earth, the power of the ocean, the redwood forests, the sea mammals, the air, the rivers, the streams, the mountains, the local mountains, to come through these same energetic anchors and mixing that with awareness and breath, allowing the three chi, awareness and breath, come through the feet and energize the feet, awaken the feet, enliven the feet. And notice what you feel Notice if sensations change, the quality of heat changes, the quality of lightness changes. Coming into the ankles, the legs, the knees. And as you allow this energizing to move through your body from your feet up, noticing what happens.
Noticing without demanding things be different, without rejecting what is present. Noticing with an open, accepting, embracing, and loving awareness. Legs, thighs, pelvis, pelvic floor, hips. lower part of the torso, the middle part of the torso, the upper part of the torso, shoulders, fingers, hands, wrists, lower part of the arm, upper part of the arm, neck, jaw, face, eyes, behind the eyes, forehead, back of the head. Now, inviting a change of posture from standing to sitting and taking the same amount of interest and care in what happens, what it feels like to change and come into sitting. So just taking a moment in the sitting to allow the posture to come into alignment and balance, which supports relaxation. And continuing in silence. The next half hour or so.
I was born in Southern California, and I came to Santa Cruz in 1979 to go to university here, and lived in the area of, for a period of 10 years. And so when I come back, there's a feeling of coming home. It's really sweet. And I, I've been living in Colorado for the last few years, and, you know, um, just the smells, the fragrances, the landscape, the the wind, the fog, the sea. It just, um, there's something very familiar about it. So it's nice to be back here. And I was saying that when I was here in 1979, there wasn't inside Santa Cruz. There wasn't Vipassana Santa Cruz. In fact, Mary or hadn't started teaching yet. And so, you know, we used to meet in, in houses and share meditation and we would, we would share meditation gossip, who was teaching which retreat where and stuff. But it, was, it has always been a, a kind of a, quite, a great pleasure for me to watch the community um, grow. And when I come back and am able to visit, just to see, you know, the numbers of people who are coming and the kind of richness of the program that's offered here and the teachings that are, that are being offered and so I, I haven't heard a lot, you know, what it's like with Jason and Rob as teachers now. When you've had Mary as the resident teacher for a long time, and, and now she's retired. But I know that these transitions can have um, have richness and excitement and tenderness and challenge in them. And and this is all part of practice. You know, it's all part of community. I'm just glad. Glad to see Jason here and glad to see all of you here. It's very lovely. Very lovely. So I wanted to talk a little bit tonight about, um, you know, following in the footsteps of the Buddha and 
the kind of situation that he was up against when he was teaching 2,500 years ago and his, his, the clarity of his vision and the way in which he was willing to make radical departure from some of that was considered um, uh, unquestionable tenets in his own society. And so, um, you know, when we look at the Buddha's story, um, you know, he grew up with affluence and wealth and abundance, and there were some very significant things that made him question his um, interest in in carrying on with that and carrying on in that same way. And the, you know, as we know from the traditional stories, it was the contact with with old age, sicknesses, and death, and his recognition that his power, his intelligence, his influence, his, his family, his reputation, the kind of um, talents that he had, uh, his job prospects, all of those things were not going to have a dent in his ability to touch old age, sickness, and death. And it wasn't, not only is it not something that he was going to be able to affect for himself, but it wasn't actually something that he was going to be able to shift for his family, for his wife, for his child, for the people that he really cared about. And so when he saw a renunciant, you know, as the story goes, that signaled for him the kind of a a possibility of, of something other, uh, uh, an awakened, uh, a quality of awakening that was beyond old age, sickness, and death. And so his life quest took him outside of the comforts of his privileged environment and his upbringing and the familiarity of the people who loved him and um, rejoiced in all of the talents that he had in search of enlightenment, in search of something that was beyond old age, sickness, and death. And, you know, for me, coming into this story, coming in contact with the story, it's, it's a useful story for us to look at in terms of, you know, what do we have in our own lives that actually allows us to move beyond old age, sickness, and death? And how much of our life is embedded in things that are familiar and comfortable and what we're used to and people who know us and rejoice in our talents and our goodness and we like it that way. You know, it, it, that's the comfortable place for us to be in. And yet this the possibility of awakening, of the possibility of touching something that's beyond sickness, that's beyond aging, that's beyond death, was really what called him to a radical going forth and leaving behind everything that was familiar to him on his search and on his quest. And his journey unfolded and through various different teachers and coming in contact with different teachings, you know, that he rejected the, the mastery of the contemporary teachers at that time because even though the levels of bliss that he experienced from absorption was the kind of greatest pleasure that you can have in this world, it didn't answer his fundamental question. Because when they were states that were conditioned 
and when the conditions changed, he came back into this human realm where he was still subject to the possibility of old age sickness and death. It didn't resolve his fundamental question. So even though the teachers were happy for him to take on his, uh, their following, his following, um, he wasn't willing to do that because the results of those particular practices in absorption didn't answer his fundamental question. What is free from old age, sickness, and death? And so, you know, and when we, when we look at that and we, we reflect on our own life, you know, in terms of what is of importance to us, where do we get energized, where do we get excited, where is our interest, where do we put a lot of attention, it's a question that's very sobering. Are the things that we're engaged in supportive of us moving beyond old age, sickness, and death? sobering, you know, pulls us up short, pulls us up by our bootstraps. Because there can be all kinds of things that are entertaining or enjoyable or really enriching, very ennobling, but we can still come back to these fundamental questions, and if we aren't able to resolve them, where does that leave us? So in his own inquiry, and then in his own awakening, he did find something that he could say, yes, this is it. This is beyond old age sickness and death, and I know this to be true. And when that was the case, and he went out to teach, you know, it was very interesting. You know, he was actually quite a quick learner, you know? So the first thing that happened was the first person that he encountered, you know, somebody asked him, so who are you, you know? What's your deal? And he said, I'm fully awakened. I'm completely and totally fully awakened. And this person said, yeah, good on you. See you later, mate. (laughs) And so, you know, what he learned from that is to declare his own state of awakening was not a useful way of instructing people. People couldn't get that. That wouldn't help them with where they were at. And so because he wasn't interested in explaining where he was at, but helping them where they were at, he changed tactics. And very rarely, after that first time, did he describe his own attainment. He talked about the path, and he talked about the nature of suffering, and he talked about the end of suffering. But in his life, one of the things that's really interesting for me is is, is that India 2,500 years ago had a couple of characteristics to it, a couple of features to it. One of the features of it was that it was deeply embedded in a caste system. And so you were born into the caste system, and there was very little that you could do to move out of the system, the caste that you were actually born into. And the other thing that was very interesting was is that women in that day and age only existed in relationship to the men around them. So when they were born, their relationship was with their fathers. Then they got married, their relationship was with their husbands. And then their relationship was with their sons. And so in this cultural context, he created a monastic sangha and allowed women to go forth 
which was a radical departure from what was happening in that time. Absolutely radical departure. The women were not dependent on fathers, husbands, or sons. They were free to contemplate, to realize the the fruit of something that was beyond old age, sickness, and death. And within the monastic society, once you were ordained into the monastic society, then the the birth status that you had no longer had any um, equity. You couldn't use that in the monastic society for privilege, for status. And so everyone was on an equal level. And the other thing that was quite a shift from what was happening in that contemporary time was this is that in the, the, the cultural ethos of that era, it was very firmly believed that the problem that needed to be resolved was in the body. So if you suppressed and overcame your bodily impulses, your bodily instincts, your bodily drives, then that somehow would get you closer to the kind of freedom that people were interested in. And through his own direct experience and inquiry, he recognized that as much as he went without food, as as much as hardship that he endured, what happened was is that his body was weakened, and the weakened body not only didn't make him any closer to the kind of freedom that he was interested in, but it made it more difficult for him to practice. And so his departure from the common held beliefs about what correct practice was then allowed him to move into the kind of of reflective awareness that allowed his mind to open and access what was then experience of what was unborn. And so in these three ways, the radical departure from what was contemporary and accepted in that time and that era. So fast forward 2,554 years into this current age, and it's helpful for us to just kind of take a a telescopic view or a bird's-eye view about what are the contemporary values of our society and just get a check and see, you know, how are we relating to that? And one of the things which I notice, particularly in North America, I don't know if it's true in every other part of the world, but one of the things in North America is, is that we locate ourselves by the stuff that we have, by the things that we do, and by the positions of status that we have and the relationships that we have. So we're not human beings, we're human havings and we're human doings. And we get extremely agitated, you know, when there's any sense of having to let go of our stuff, having to let go of our status, and when our relationships are shifting and changing. It's really devastating. And so in our contemporary world, when we are dealing with um, something like a community that is based on generosity, it's not a transactional world. So in North America, we live in a transactional society where what we have is based on what we can buy. And to move across that is to 
the kind of be a, a, like a radical departure from the kind of mainstream of how things are operating. And then to move into considering what are basic needs rather than what I want is also a really radical shift from the way we're used to thinking and operating. Now, I haven't lived in Santa Cruz for 20-something years now, 24 years. So I don't know what's going on here now. But 24 years ago, this was a counterculture hotspot of the West Coast. And there were all kinds of people who were involved in creative endeavors to cut across the kind of normal mainstream values of having, of getting, of acquiring uh, things and stuff and resources to live simply, to live with community, to live with um, sensitivity and uh, a much wider kind of uh, inclusive value system. And that was part of the reason why I really loved it. You know, it was just, it was fabulous. So when we take this sense of a cultural departure from what was considered norm and we move that into the interior landscapes of our own practice, what shows up? What is the radical departure that we need to engage in? What are the kinds of inquiry that we need to wake up to that takes us into territory that is liberative and sometimes not supported by the value system of the society that we're living in. Now, one of the things that I lived with, living in England, in the monasteries in England, was, you know, I've had the incredible blessing of this tradition and the training and the support to live on alms and this, I mean, living in a nun in this kind of temporary world is just pretty far out. You know, it's not... There's not very many opportunities where you can be supported to do that. And yet, what I was up against was the kind of um, weird thing of a traditional society that was rubbing up against modern values and having to navigate, how do we do this? How do we do this as a group of nuns and how do I do this as an individual person? And... One of the things as, an, as a nun that we become really highly sensitized to is the needs of the group, that we don't put our own needs above the needs of the group, so that we're moving in a way that supports the group uh, health and well-being and doing that in a way sometimes where we have to put our own needs aside. And it's a really important training to learn how to do that. But there's also a balancing part of that. And the balancing part of that is is that when the needs of the group are cutting across my own values, then there's a place for my own primary needs. Then there's a time when we have to actually hold our own ground and say, this is not working for me. I need to find another way of doing this. And so for myself, there was something that this training and this teaching and the radical departure from what the Buddha did in his own life and the way that I internalized that gave me the willingness to inquire my own relationship within my own community. And there came a time for me where it was no longer a question of my opinion about what was harmful and what was right, 
but it moved into my conviction about what I knew was harmful and what I knew I could no longer endorse, where I had to say, time out. I can't do this in the way you are asking me to do this. And I'm prepared to risk everything that I know to speak that truth, to stand up to that truth, and to follow that through. And there's something in the way the Buddha lived and the way that he taught that gave me the willingness to do that in my own circumstance, where there are times when we have to stand up and say something that we know is true, no matter what the consequences are. And in the situation that I was in, what I was doing was very much going against the ethos of the whole community that I was in, you know? Because the community had established itself in a particular way that supported people um, being attuned to the community needs rather than to individual value needs. So... For myself, the radical example of the Buddha and the radical example of Ajahn Chah and the radical example of Ajahn Buddhadasa, who were people in their own right who pulled away from the mainstream of the way the teachings were being taught and said, this doesn't work for me. There's got to be another way that works for me that's more congruent with my own understanding, was the kind of basis for my own willingness to take myself out of familiar territory and say, I trust the fundamental teachings. I trust my intention. I trust the possibility to live on generosity. And I trust stepping into the unknown and seeing what happens. So when I decided that I was leaving England... It was in 2008. I decided I was leaving England. There was nothing. Zero. There was no group, no invitation, no foundation, no benefactor, no funds, no support. There was absolutely zero. But there was the conviction to know this is not working. There has got to be a path I will find that will emerge from this. I have no idea what it looks like, and yet I have to trust that that I have to walk in this way and allow something to open that will be congruent with what I know to be true and not require me to compromise fundamental values that I have to live with something because it supports the basic needs that I have. So I came back to the United States and, you know, obviously this kind of gender discrepancy, it's like, you know, come on, really? You know, 2000 and what? 2013 and, you know, the men and the women can't figure out how to relate to each other in a way that makes sense, you know, according to some of our modern principles. It's like, I can't do that anymore. That doesn't work for me, you know? It wasn't just growing up in Santa Cruz. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just, it's like, you know, I can't do that anymore. 
But there's another thing that I also began to get a feeling for, which is, is that a monastery is set up to be an oasis for everybody who is present there. Okay? So it's built on the premise of it being a spiritual oasis for everyone. But the, the reality of the way the power structure was working was is that the monastics were the ones who had the sole authority to input into the spiritual leadership of the community. And on one hand, when you can see traditionally that it was the monastics who spent you know, the kind of time that we had and the dedication that we had, I can absolutely understand how it got that way and the value of that and the simplicity and the clarity of that. You transpose that into a North American culture where you have people who've been practicing for 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years in a lay context who have realizations of themselves, who've got communities of themselves. And to say that the only people who can input into the wisdom component of a community are the people who have certain precepts is another disparity. You know? And what happens for the lay community who are connected to a monastic community after 20 or 30 years, which they felt as disenfranchised and dispossessed as the nuns felt. There's got to be another way. And so for me, the radical example of the Buddha is allowing me to take his courage and example into the contemporary contest and ask, what is needed now? What is needed now for where we're at, for what we know, for what makes sense now? Now, I don't presume to have enough clarity to be able to figure it out for something that works for everybody, you know? I don't, I don't, I'm not, that's not the kind of breadth of my vision. But I know that some of these basic things are things not to dismiss because they're complicated. But to hold open the space and say, yes, this radical vision of a radical awakening that is not just for monastics, but for everybody, how is it that we can begin to ask the right questions and start creating fabric of community that allows everybody to wake up? What does that look like? How do we do that? What is needed in order for this to move forward? Now, one of the other things that has been really an interesting component of being part of a monastic community for so many years is is, is that the contemplative elements of our community have been very, very highly regarded, and rightly so. I think an enormous amount of transformation takes place with inquiry when it's held in the right way. But in our modern world, we have the advantage of neurobiology and science that has been able to track certain kinds of things that the Buddha didn't have language to describe. So I have never read anything in any of the suttas that talks about the effects of trauma. Okay? It just doesn't exist. And I have never read anything that talks about the effect of self-hatred. That's not in the suttas either. And we look around in our contemporary modern world and trauma and self-hatred is endemic. It's everywhere. It's extraordinarily rare where it doesn't exist. You know, it's incredibly embedded. And so it's not that the contemplations are wrong. It's that what we are dealing with is a context which is not mirrored in the Buddhist time. 
And what is needed is to take the intelligence of what exists in parallel disciplines and bring it into our life, that we have a whole life practice that begins to allow awakening to move into the various different levels of what it is to be a human being. And not to assume that because the experience of enlightenment is transformative, then that enlightenment by necessity will cut across the boundaries into every other aspect of our life. That by necessity it will allow us to grow up into developmentally uh, whole, intact, grown-up people. That it allows us to release the traumas that we have. That it allows us to take care of the stuff that is not the specific focus of what inquiry and a transpersonal experience does. So we are in like a new era of looking at where we're at culturally and how do we wake up in a way where the whole of our human experience is included in that picture. Yeah. So the Buddha was magnificent, absolutely remarkable. And his example, for me, has given me an enormous amount of courage of asking what's important now and how can I show up in a way that embodies that, that addresses that, that speaks to that, and that is able to begin to create a context where other people who are similarly interested can draw near and benefit. So I'd like to pause here and change the format and invite conversation, questions, comments, discussion about this. Let me just pause this thing and then start it again. And I don't know how to pause this thing and start it again. Okay. Yes, please. Um, I love your um, your idea that um, awakening experiences may not necessarily transform all elements of the human mind, and that we um, need to look more carefully at how that can be more pervasive and. I would like to suggest that one way that can come about is to have a, a wider range of practice opportunities for people. We, we have a certain set modes that we do, like groups like this, for example, when you come and sit and then hear a talk, or we go on retreat. But I can imagine that there would be many other ways that could be touched by the idea that by engaging in that activity we are doing practice and that can then help support this um, broadening of people's uh, experiences to touch other elements of their heart. You know, why not practices that can happen in a work setting or practices that can happen in an outdoor setting. Some of these are beginning to happen. But I would like to hear some ideas that you might have about other options that could bring forth some of these other qualities of the heart. Um, One of the communities that I've been involved with for the last couple of years is the Insight Dialogue Community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
And so, you know, one of the things that happens that's a little bit weird is is that we come and we sit in silence. And so, you know, in a monastery, there's times for meditation and silence, and then there's times for ceremony, and we share meals together, and we have precept time together, and we do things that are work together, we play together, we rest together. So it's like a 360-degree kind of lifestyle where we're interacting in all these different ways. And these meditation groups are coming in. You know, you have an hour and a half, come in, and you sit, and then you hear a talk, and then you have questions. It's very narrow bandwidth of the kind of range of stuff that we can do together, you know. So playing together, working together, and doing it in a way where there's a commitment to bring care and intention and mindfulness into the practice is very, very enriching. I mean, I haven't tracked what's been going on in terms of community dynamics, but community dynamics are often complicated, rich, painful, and enormously growthful. And to find the kind of ways to bring skillfulness to community dynamics often requires a lot of inquiry on some of these other levels. So communication skills and community dynamic building skills is really helpful for some of these other places. And so what is needed is to recognize that meetings, not silent meditation meetings, but business meetings and sorting out stuff kind of meetings is actually important in practice because in those kinds of things, we get to see aspects of ourselves in places where we want stuff or places where we're frightened of stuff or places where we get irritated by stuff that's maybe not so apparent when we sit down on a cushion by ourselves in silence. And yet that's the stuff when we're working with it that is really helpful to learn how to massage and work with and interact with others where the fullness of who we are and the fullness of our practice can come into light. So how does that sit with you when I say that? Does that resonate as being true? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Um, I find it kind of, it's always surprising to me when I sit and hear a darn talk and it's like, oh, that's so perfect for what is up for me to do. And I am, this is the practice of my heart, is the kasana, and this is the tradition I think of my heart. And I, but I was um, really devastated um, when I did some intensive practice and a lot of trauma came up for me and I had a lot of difficulty. And the, this tradition didn't hold that for me. And it was, I felt very rejected. And I don't know if that's a similar or, or in any way parallel to your experience as a woman in a monastic environment, but um, I found myself at Mountain Dawn Center. I got a job there. I don't know if you're familiar people here in the late 70s. And it's not my practice. But I have to say, as crazy as those people are, that (laughs) it's a beautiful community. And people hold things quite differently. Right. And there's a real understanding that I've had as a result of 
my experiences, my the insight I gained in my practice, the trauma that came up and that I dealt with, and the experience of how community holds that, that's across lay and you know, it's non-spiritual, it's you know, just gave me the insight into how our culture is is breaking down because we don't hold each other in community. Right. And and just the fact that you brought up all of those pieces. Yes. But yes. and if, do you have anything I mean, is there anything that you could add to that or connect Well, you know, I, I, we also it was a painful learning to learn how to hold people through their trauma in our community. You know, and some of the things that happened were quite blood curdling really. I mean it was just like unimaginable some of the things that we did in response you know it was just unspeakable really mm-hmm. and so we learned from suffering we learned from getting it wrong how to do it right and learning after decades the value of you know a community cohesiveness but you know what it takes to get there is actually not at all trivial it's not at all trivial you know to get there but because of the fact that we were monastics and we were bunched up together for decades, you know, there was the kind of context where that kind of work could actually take place, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So what I feel heartened by is, is, is that there was learning and more skill that evolved. And what I feel heartened by, you know, listening to somebody who I know who's in the teacher training program out of Spirit Rock, is that she's, she's not just encouraged, she's... You know, trauma coursework is part of the teaching. So that there's clarity now that learning for the meditation teachers to understand trauma modalities and how to work with it is, is, is more widespread. And, you know, at IMS, they had a full-time staff position on the grounds to help um, hold and support a person who was going through stuff that was outside of the range of what the teachers could navigate. So it's, it is happening, but what happens is, is that there's a certain amount of, well, there's damage. And there's, you know, there's a, you know, picking up the, the mess as people, are, as communities are learning, yeah. you know. And so, and each of us have to do damage patrol within ourselves and with our friends as there's a collective movement towards greater intelligence and capacity and picking up the pieces along the way, you know. But understanding the value of community and actually making that a priority mm-hmm. is a very different thing than having a meditation group on Monday night or Sunday night or, you know, a day long once a month. It's, it's a different thing. And it, it takes different skills than being able to offer a Dhamma reflection. And different commitment from the people, you know. And the messiness that's required to weather in order for it to come into coherence requires a lot of ground, a lot of understanding, and a lot of faith that this messiness is worth enduring to get to the good stuff that comes on the other side of it. Because, you know, there can be significant shit shoveling all the way around for a long time until it settles out into, aha, this feels great. You know? 
So it takes vision to stay with that, to get through it until a cohesiveness emerges that actually can hold something deeper. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, please, in the back. Um, thank you for your question and for bringing up trauma. It's really um, a rich conversation. And, um, I just wondered if you might you know, have anything specific that we might do here at this time that from, from what you've learned about um, making space for um, people with parents trauma. Well, what's needed is to have some people who are good at picking up signals and understanding that there are parallel processes of meditation that are valid. So, like, you know, eventually some of us got the antenna. So, like, you know, just watching the way a person would walk, for example, or following their speech patterns, okay? And we'd pull them out of meditation. So they were not allowed to do retreats. We'd have them sweep leaves or go chop vegetables in the kitchen or color or draw or paint or sweep or paint. Or we would not have them sitting in silence, okay? Sitting in silence is not what people need when they're in the middle of a trauma vortex. What they need is ground. They need, they need containment. They need friendship. They need safety. They need titration. They need to be able to locate ease and safety in their own body and not move into scary, difficult, painful places untitrated. So you do it in small amounts rather than in a dive in. And you need the warmth of human beings that understand this is normal, there's nothing wrong with you, it's actually something as healthy that's discharging, but we need to do it in safety, which means slow. And to do it in safety and slow means that you need to have breaks, you need to have stop, you need to have reverse, and you need to be tethered to your own sense of goodness. So one of the brilliant things that a community can do is mirror for each other goodness. Because when you're in the middle of a trauma vortex, you're not seeing your own goodness. All you see is a cesspit that looks infinite. And that feels like that's your essential nature, you know? So what's needed is to have goodness as being, well, no, this is what you're experiencing and it looks like that to you, but that's not. And what I see is your determination and your honesty and your courage and your joy and your generosity and to continually help mirror for others their goodness. Because the goodness gives leverage to move through trauma titrated rather than in a kind of crevasse. And community can do that. They can learn how to hold the space and mirror for each other goodness. That is something that can happen. But what's needed is to have antenna out about when a person should not be sitting in silence. Now, and how to create parallel meditation practices that are validating and honored and accepted you know, because that's one of the things that's so hard is is that, you know, when we're really committed to practice, when we can't practice, it feels like somebody's pulled the carpet out from underneath our feet. And so that's one of the things about a monastery. There's a million different ways that you can practice. It's not based on meditation. Meditation is one small 
area of a whole lifestyle. And there, I mean, many monastics go through periods of time where they can't do formal meditation practice. And it's normal. There's nothing wrong. It's normal. And we know that it comes, it goes, it changes, and when it's time to meditate again, we'll be all right. But because these lay centers are built around meditation as the sole practice, then the whole thing gets out of balance. And there isn't parallel practices that you can engage in, and so people feel bereft, either because they can't engage with their community, or they're doing stuff that's actually not what they need at all. And it's black and white. There's no gray. Yes, please. I appreciate um, what you're bringing up. I um, had the opportunity to spend time in a monastery, so to sort of benefit and appreciate that practice, just being with monks and uh, appreciating that sense of community that is there. and uh, just living together, sharing meals together, practicing together, but also feel like it's not necessarily my path to ordain and you know really commit to something like that. And then I come back here, and I'm really grateful for uh, this sangha and for the opportunity to practice uh, here. But I hear what you're saying, where there's limits. It's my feeling is that I could do more retreats, do more talks, do you know, more sits. I'm not sure that's community, but you know, maybe right. it's a little bit more. Right. And so it does feel like there's this kind of void between monastic and what we have offered. Yes. And um, so is there some model or shape or idea or vision of what is community, but maybe uh, more for a, a, a lay practitioner? So let me just pause. It's 8.31, and, you know, this is normally supposed to go until 8.30, so I want to just give people an opportunity, if they've got other stuff that they need to do, that if you want to slip out now, that's fine. Otherwise, I'm happy to continue for a bit, because it doesn't feel like we quite have got to a completion point. Yeah. I think different people, different communities, got different visions. The larger vision of what I would love to see is like a Dhamma village, Okay where you've got a monastic community as part of the village. And you've got a meditation hall that is large enough that different people can come to it. And you've got people living with different precepts. So you've got the monastics with the fully ordained precepts, the novices with less precepts, and then you've got lay people and householders and kids who, with our family precepts, you know, the five precepts, right? But in a Dhamma village, the, you know, the feeling is, is, is the sense of that the commitment, the basic commitment is to wake up. But that's what everybody has in common. And people are engaged in participating at different levels according to the different kinds of commitment that they have. Yeah. Now, how to do this, I don't know. I'm a visionary. I'm not a strategic planner. So what I need is to have people help me figure out steps and stages. But what I know is like, you know, the kind of basic model of the monastery that I come from is is that it wasn't just for monastics and it was an oasis and that the place was a place where people could come and connect with community and connect in different ways and be involved in work 
and in Dharma talks and in ceremony and in celebration and in sharing meals, but they were not required to be monastics in order to participate. So the monastic communities that I have all lived in have been like that, where the doors were open and people could connect in and participate at different levels, right? There was never an expectation that the people who came would eventually ordain. You know, we had a process of uh, inviting people who were interested in ordaining, but there was never an assumption that the people who came would eventually move in that direction. So what I think is needed is, is is to have community be like the pivot point of the Eightfold Path, and then to begin to start looking at some of these other areas of our life where the contemplation is not necessarily addressing One of them is uh, psychological development. The other is trauma. And uh, then understanding the subtle energies of our body is not something that we necessarily have access to when when we're doing meditation practice. So understanding like the whole range of what it is to be human being is a whole life practice, not just a monastic practice. And so teachings that address these different areas and skillful means that are part of allowing these things. For me, my vision is to have a a community where these things were all there. And because of being a woman and because I don't do great in narrow, structured, confined, defined spaces, what I see happening is to have a kind of basic monastic training and then a self-directed monastic training. So there's like a basic stuff that you need to learn and then you pick the kinds of things that you want to develop more with. So that's just like a self-directed monastic training course where you are working in the kinds of things that are really allowing you to come alive and to flourish. So the Insight Dialogue community has a whole life training practice for lay community. And the basis of it is, is to stabilize the qualities of meditation in the experience of, of, of speaking with each other. If I could just add something. Please, Jason. Just wanting to, you know, I have all these kind of thoughts and uh, around, you know, one style, you know, the monastic versus this kind of lay center. And I just want to really offer that um, the whole premise of us even having this, and this used to be one group a week that met. And the idea of opening this center was to create multiple opportunities for people to come together in multiple uh, ways. Um, And we actually, uh, I feel like we here, you know, if, if you haven't looked at the website, we have uh, dialogue discussion groups, we have Kalyanamita groups where there's, you know, a book or a theme or something like that that's happening. Um, So there really is lots of opportunity, you know, Mary Grace Orr and the Teachers Council are are hope in creating this center um, uh, was and still is that it is a community center. It's not a uh, a teacher teaching group center, and um, in order to do that, though, you know, like you're saying, 
It takes people to step up and to volunteer and to say, I'm going to do a Kalyanamitsa group. I'd love to do that, you know, on Sunday at 12.30 or whatever works for me. So just that, the, 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 as the Buddha did, you know, responding to uh, uh, the drive to keep going forward to find the truth for himself. Um, this center is a vehicle, uh, just like the Dhamma is a vehicle, to uh, look within and to find out how can I build more community within this community? You know, how can I, uh, what, what is it that I can do or, or where is there a place that I see uh, uh, a lack? And you know, <coughs> for, like for us, one of, that, one of those uh, places was we don't have as much monastic connection in our little Santa Cruz Center, and so reaching out and then uh, building relationships with monastics so that when they come through, we can have this dialogue. So, uh, just wanted to kind of put that out there on the, just got a, kind of a broader uh, spectrum. That there's, there's, there's lots of opportunity. This is a building, and we do what we can. And, uh, but I think the point you're making, Jason, is excellent, and I think that's one of the things that needs to shift, is, is, is that we've come from a space of, like, you know, looking at the, the hero leader, you know, mm-hmm. like the one who rides the white horse and waves the sword and gathers the people and charges forward. It's like we're out of that style, you know. What we need is individuals who take their particular genius and say, this is my genius, and I'm happy to share it with you. And can we come together around that? Or it might not even be my genius, but my sense of, this is what feels like is needed right now, or this is what I need. And so when each person is able then to locate the stuff that they can offer and the stuff that they need and are willing to show up with that, then you've got a level of engagement that's very different than when people are just looking at the teachers or the leaders to do it and to make it happen. So there's another shift that's happening in our society where we're not so focused on the one leader, but to be able to figure out how each of us can move forward and show up and offer and express what our needs are in ways that what happens is then more nourishing for the larger whole. Alison, you had a question? Um, yeah, this has been incredibly insightful, wonderful, revealing uh, what you're talking about. Um, I'm new to practice. I've only been doing this since July of last year. Um, and I've had chronic depression. And I read Mark Epstein's book. I think it's called Buddhism and Psychotherapy. And I was hoping that I would find the answer um, in that book. And when he says, neither one of them works by themselves. You need both. Uh, yeah, <laughs> what do you do just with Buddhism? I can't afford a psychotherapist. And you can't often find psychotherapists who, you know, get Buddhism necessarily. Um, but I just wanted to mention, I've only been in one retreat, and on a small scale, I think it speaks to some of what you're talking about, and it was that Insight Retreat Center here in Scotts Valley, where it's a Dhamma-based retreat center, and you're, volunt- you're, work- you're working there. And it was, it was wonderful. I mean, at 6.40 every morning, everybody had a job. And then they had a job besides. And then people could volunteer to do other things. 
And I happen to know one of the retreatants who was falling apart in the middle of the retreat. And they had her out gardening. Just like you said. And it was it was perfect. It was wonderful. So I think that kind of you know that it, it speaks in a small way to what to what we're talking about. Right, right. This is right. the retreat. We're all working here together exactly. for a community. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Even though it's noble science, but Right. And the feeling that comes with that is just very rich. Yeah. yeah beautiful. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Thank you. Enough for now? Good. Um, I would like to close with a little um, blessing chant or a few minutes of meditation on metta and then a few announcements. Okay? So just coming back into a sitting posture that feels open and relaxed and comfortable. For a moment, tuning in to your own deepest longings, what they might be, peace or happiness or community or freedom or being free from pain, sorrow, depression. So just touching in to what is your deepest aspiration, kind of getting a sense of what that might be. Bringing a kind of care and nourishment and tenderness to that in a way that we're like watering seeds. Letting the flowers take root and germinate and flower. And in our own tenderness to our own aspiration, we can also bring a sense of care to the whole of what it is to be human, that we can live without pain and suffering, and our basic needs can be met. We can live with the feeling of knowing what love is, what ease is, what being cherished feels like. And letting these qualities of nourishing our aspiration and care and kindness, heartfulness to ourselves, just tuning in to the people who are in the space now, the ones who may have left a little bit early, Just having that quality, that sense of sharing that aspirations are nourished and cultivated and metta extends and outward to family and friends and neighbors and colleagues at work and outward further so that all beings everywhere can be touched with heartfulness to not experience distress and pain. Mm -hmm. 
sorrow. Now let's just switch gears for a moment and just consider all of the many different options you had of what you could have done tonight and the effort it came to come here this evening, the journey that you made to get here. And the blessings of what we talk about, the things that open for you, the potentials that are spoken of. And letting the blessings that come from sharing an evening in this way, letting that radiate out, touching all beings in all directions. Touching the land, the ocean, all the animals and the trees, saturating the air and the water. So that everyone and everything is suffused with the goodness of what we are involved with tonight. Tonight. 